It was a dark Saturday night in 1978 when Trudy left her friends at the Newport Surf Lifesaving Club and hitched a ride home to Avalon. Everyone hitched back then in the northern beaches. It wasn't anything unusual, except that on this night in June, Trudy never made it home. What followed was four police investigations and one coronial inquest, all of which pointed to one very good suspect in Trudy's disappearance and suspected murder. But to this day, Trudy's family are still waiting for answers. What happened to Trudy? Where is she now? Who is responsible? And how can we find her? This episode contains content related to abduction, sexual assault and rape and is not suitable for children. Today I'm delving into the missing persons case of Trudy Adams. Last seen getting into a fawn-coloured panel van on Baron Joey Road, north of Sydney, New South Wales, almost 40 years ago. I'm Carla Morgan, and this is Bolo, a podcast covering cold and active missing persons cases with the aim of helping families bring their loved ones home. Trudy Adams was an 18-year-old business college student when she went missing. She had blonde hair, green eyes, and was 162 centimetres tall. In 1977, the year before she went missing, she actually featured in an Australian documentary film called Highway One. It's an indie film, and it shows her and her friends in several scenes at Avalon Beach which is in the Northern Beaches area of Sydney. And the filmmaker, Steve Otten, said about Trudy that she was always happy, always smiling, and that nothing was ever a problem. The Northern Beaches is known by locals as the Insular Peninsula. It's like a small town in a big city where everyone knows everyone. It's also where Australia's hit sitcom Home and Away is filmed, in the idyllic sands of Summer Bay. It's crunchy and elite now, but in the late 70s and early 80s, the Northern Beaches had a dark, seedy side that held many secrets. One of the dark sides of the Northern Beaches at the time of Trudy's disappearance was that it was a hotspot for the drug trade. And because Trudy had a trip planned to Bali just before she went missing, people speculated that the reason she disappeared was because she was somehow involved in an international drug smuggling ring between Australia and Bali. In fact, Trudy's mother believed that this is what happened to her, that she knew too much and had got involved with the wrong people. However, there's no evidence that links her to the drug trade. So this theory was looked into closely, but was ultimately dismissed by police. One of the secrets of the Northern Beaches in the late 70s and early 80s that has only just recently come out were allegations of grooming and child sexual assault by teachers of high school students in the area. This was revealed in the podcast The Teacher's Pet 
by renowned journalist Hedley Thomas. If you've listened to The Teacher's Pet, you'll be aware that the behaviour of these teachers towards students went largely unreported until Hedley uncovered students who were now middle-aged and ready to talk. There is one case in front of the courts in Australia at the time that this is being recorded, and if you head over to the Teacher's Accuser podcast, you'll be able to follow the case in real time. The accused in this instance is the same person who was recently found guilty of murdering his wife, Lynette Dawson, in order to marry this student. But back to the late 70s and the night of the 25th of June. Trudy was out with friends at a dance at the Newport Beach Hotel. She was wearing a green floral blouse and black jumper that night. Also at the hotel was her ex-boyfriend, Steve Norris. Steve was a very recent ex, as they'd only broken up a few days earlier. Some reports say that Steve and Trudy were arguing that night, but not everyone agrees, and Steve Norris denies it. Trudy wasn't feeling great, as she'd had a vaccination that day for her upcoming trip to Bali, so around midnight she decided to call it quits and head home. Steve Norris was watching her from the window of the club and he saw Trudy walk across the car park and go and wait at a well-known hitching spot on the corner of Neptune and Baron Joey Road. He kept watching her and he saw a fawn-coloured panel van pull up next to Trudy and when it pulled away, she was gone. He was concerned. He was worried about her hitchhiking, so he left the hotel and then he hitched a ride with a local man the six minutes from Newport to Avalon, where Trudy lived with her parents. This ride has been confirmed by the local. When Steve arrived at Trudy's house, he didn't find Trudy, only her mum Connie, who was still up waiting for her. Connie was immediately worried when she learned that Trudy had hitched a ride home but hadn't arrived yet. If Trudy wasn't planning on coming home, she would have called her. And she told Steve and her friends at the hotel that she was going home. So where was she? Steve borrowed a bike from Trudy's place and spent the early hours of the morning looking for her. But when he couldn't find her, he went back home to his parents' house for the rest of the night. Later the next day, Trudy's mum Connie reported her missing to police. Steve Norris, Trudy's ex, was obviously a good first suspect, and police honed in on him quickly. He was someone who was in Trudy's inner circle of friends. He was a very recent ex. He was the last person to see her. And as we know, some reports say they were arguing that night before she left. Steve was questioned repeatedly by police and was very open and helpful to the investigation. He also helped in the search for Trudy, and he was eventually ruled out by police. Four days after Trudy went missing, an anonymous male called the local police station and said, I quote, The girl is dead. It was an accident. She's halfway up Monavale Road and then hung up. Trudy's mum also received a similar call the same day. These calls sparked huge searches for Trudy in that area and into neighbouring Karingai Chase National Park. It's a massive area of around 15,000 hectares or 
150 square kilometres of dense bushland with pockets of creeks, waterways, rocks and sandstone ledges. It's an incredibly difficult area to search, but search they did for six weeks for Trudy in that bushland until they eventually called it off. Six months into the investigation, the police looked into the Roselands lads. This was a gang who were not from the Northern Beaches, who were not operating in that area at all, but the only connection to the Northern Beaches was that one of the guys in the gang had a girlfriend who lived in the area. A pretty tenuous link. It was rumoured that they had confessed or were bragging about Trudy's abduction and murder, and people were convinced enough to report this to the police. The Roselands lads were investigated at the time, then again in 1995, which was 17 years later, again in 2008, and they appeared at the 2011 inquest. There was nothing to substantiate the reports or the rumours and the members of the gang who appeared at the inquest vehemently denied any involvement. Trudy's case was huge at the time. There was a lot of media coverage. And what did happen as a result of Trudy's disappearance is that police started receiving calls from young women who were locals, all coming forward to report their own experience of abduction and rape. These attacks all occurred around the same area as Trudy was in on the night she went missing. They often occurred while they were attempting to hitchhike. And they all took place between 1971 and 1978. The victims were all young girls and women aged between 14 and 20. And curiously, or not so curiously as we're going to find out later, These abductions and rapes stopped as soon as Trudy went missing. The attacks were eerily similar. The MO was the same. The young women were forced at gunpoint into a vehicle by two men. Both of the men were wearing disguises like wigs and glasses. The young women were taken to a remote area of bushland where they were brutally attacked and raped. Sometimes... Polaroid photos were taken of the victims. The perpetrators would look through the victims' belongings, find their wallet. Back in those days, we all had our addresses written down in our wallets, so they would take them very close to their home address and drop them off after the attack. The women and the girls were threatened with death or harm to their families if they told anyone or reported it to police. In all, 14 girls and young women came forward just after Trudy went missing. I think we can safely assume that there were many, many more than the 14 who were brave enough to come forward. At the time, women were victim-blamed, not believed, told there was no evidence, and sadly, all of these things continue to happen today, which is why rape victims often choose to stay silent. In this case these young women did come forward, and spoiler alert, 
none of them have seen justice. Statistically, of the rape cases that are reported, investigated and end up in court, less than 3% end up in a conviction of the perpetrator. If you'd like to support the show, you can click on the link in the show notes to buy me a virtual coffee. This will help me cover the costs of making the podcast and to continue to create more content. If you're enjoying the podcast, please go to Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to rate and review. This really helps our stories be seen and heard by more people. Remarkably, one of these women was able to take police to the area where she was taken. Police searched the area and they found a mattress, a blanket and some clothing. This area was in the Karingai Chase National Park, close to Monaval Road. And I'll put a map on socials so you can see the area that I'm talking about. So police were hopeful that they would find something there to tie back to Trudy, but nothing of Trudy's was ever discovered there. There was no physical evidence found tying the rapes to Trudy. This doesn't mean that police ruled out these perpetrators as suspects in Trudy's disappearance. She was the same age as these women. She was in the same area as these women were when they were taken. She was even seen getting into a vehicle of very similar description that one of the perpetrators owned at the time. This perpetrator was identified by several of the rape victims as a man called Neville Tween. He had many aliases, but I'm going to stick with Neville Tween. Tween was a known criminal who owned a light-coloured panel van. Remember, Trudy was seen getting into a fawn-coloured panel van, and Tween lived in the area near where the rapes took place. He had been in and out of prison his entire life. He was a career criminal who spent time in the northern beaches in the 70s when he wasn't in prison. In fact, all of the attacks and Trudy's disappearance coincide with times that he was out of prison. And the times that he was in prison, there were no rapes or abductions reported on the northern beaches. He was arrested and charged over an abduction and sexual assault of a 19-year-old man, which occurred in 1973, so three years before Trudy's disappearance. What had happened was Tween didn't like the pot he'd been sold, so he took this young man, who sold him the pot, out to the bush, made him dig his own grave, made him put on female underwear, and then sexually assaulted him and took Polaroid photos. The young man reported it to police, and when police searched Tween's home, they found the photos of the assault, and he was arrested and charged. Tween had an accomplice for this assault, a man by the name of Gary Batt, and they both spent six months in jail for this attack. Gary Batt and Tween later had a falling out, and when Tween threatened Batt to disappear himself, he did. At the 2011 inquest, Bat said that Tween was a violent and evil man. So Tween had been identified by some of the rape victims as the perpetrator. He lived in the area, 
He owned the same type of car that Trudy was seen getting into. He had a history of abduction and rape and sexual assault, and he had served time for that. Why wasn't he questioned by police at the time that these women came forward? Apparently, when police went to question him, his solicitor, who in some reports is said to have underworld connections, intervened and said that Tween was not to be questioned. The solicitor denies that this phone call ever took place, but if it did, it could easily have been perceived as a threat and for the cops to stand down or to not look any further at Tween. And it worked because they didn't. Tween left the Northern Beaches after Trudy's disappearance, which is when the rapes also stopped. I have many questions. Where did the mattress go? The clothing that was found? Was it kept as evidence? It would have been too early for DNA then, but if they kept samples or the items, it could have been tested in the 80s or even 90s for DNA evidence. So nothing happens with Trudy's case and it goes cold. So let's fast forward to the early 90s when we learn that Tween was working for the police as a paid informant. He was working for a man called Mark Standen, a federal police officer. Standen would eventually work his way up in the ranks to eventually hold a very high position, the position of Australia's Crime Commission investigator. Standen's job as Crime Commission investigator was to investigate organised crime. And, well, it's clear he did more than investigate because this guy is currently serving a 22-year sentence for conspiring to import 300 kilograms of pseudoephedrine into Australia. So here's a little timeline of the interactions between Mark Standen and Tween. Standen and Tween work as police officer and informant in the early 90s. In 2006, Tween was arrested on drug charges and Standen then distances himself from Tween. In 2008, Standen was arrested on drug importation charges. So they are both in prison when in 2009, Tween is questioned by police for the very first time regarding the rapes and Trudy's disappearance. So clearly Standen was working with Tween on drug-related informing, but there are allegations that it was more than that. Allegations that they were actually very close family friends with a strong connection, so potentially went way back to the 70s and the 80s. Standen denies this. He says their friendship was just a friendship and that he distanced himself from Tween as soon as Tween was arrested in 2006. Standen says that he was the one responsible for bringing Tween down and Standen also maintains that he is an innocent man. 
So Tween goes to prison in 2006. Standen follows in 2008, both for drug charges. Perhaps their initial friendship moved into their work relationship of informant and police officer, then moved into some kind of partnership. And that would certainly explain Tween being protected by someone like Standen or someone higher up. I can't think of a better reason for why he was only ever questioned once Standen was in prison. Even if Standen was protecting Tween back then, which I suspect would be because Tween was giving him some high-profile criminals, why then wasn't Tween investigated after both of them were in prison? Perhaps because, like I mentioned earlier, there was someone much higher up than Standen who was protecting them both. I mean, he was questioned, but that went nowhere, which again is like, he's untouchable. The coronial inquest took place in 2011. Trudy's family and friends really had their hopes set on obtaining an outcome of sorts. During the inquest, Tween was combative, arrogant and argumentative. When questioned about the rapes and Trudy's disappearance, he denied everything and he fired back with his own questions, asking why he was never interviewed, why he was never charged. Saying things like, if there was evidence that it was me, then you tell me why I was never interviewed. The determination from the coroner was that Trudy met with foul play. That was it. There's no physical evidence against Tween, but plenty of circumstantial evidence. People have been convicted in this country very recently without a body, without physical evidence. But it's a moot point because Tween died in 2013 in prison. So with Tween dead and Stanton denying any knowledge, there's not much further we can get. But what about Tween's accomplice? The young women who were attacked said there were two men. We know that Tween was identified by some of the women, and actually, as it turns out, so was his associate, Raymond Johnson. We learned that both Tween and Johnson were arrested in Sydney just four months after Trudy went missing. Sydney is less than one hour south of the Northern Beaches. When they were arrested, they had guns in their possession, wigs and false beards. But this information about the arrest wasn't given to detectives who were covering the rapes and Trudy's disappearance. You know, it was the time, I guess, when different police departments didn't really talk to each other and there may not have been a central reporting system and that meant that that information wasn't given to the detectives covering the Northern Beaches. Had that information been passed on, it might have been enough at the time to bring the untouchable tween to justice. There's barely a steric of information that I could find on Ray Johnson except that he died in prison before the 2011 inquest. There are so many rabbit holes to go down with this case. International drug running, organised crime and potential police corruption. But it's pretty clear that there's a truckload of circumstantial evidence against one man. And now that man is dead, we could be looking into those who were closest to him at the time. If you'd like a deep dive into the case, there's a great ABC documentary called Baron Joey Road on iView, which I'd encourage you to check out, and I'll put a link in the show notes for you. Connie, Trudy's mum, 
has passed now, but Charles, Trudy's dad, and Trudy's brother still want and deserve answers. Trudy's family want to bring her home. Trudy would be 63 years old now. Where is the justice for her? Where is the justice for the 14 victims of those abductions and brutal rapes? This is from the New South Wales Police website. Homicide squad detectives working Trudy's case suspect there are still more victims of the sexual assaults on the northern beaches at the time. They would like the women to know that support is available for them and they are encouraged to contact Strike Force Caldy detectives. Their information, despite the passage of time, might be crucial to helping us charge those responsible in this case. The New South Wales government has put a $250,000 reward for anyone who provides information that leads to the arrest and conviction of the person or people responsible for Trudy's suspected death. If you or anyone you know know anything at all, please contact Police Link on 131 4 or call Crime Stoppers on 1-800-333-000. Thanks for listening to Bolo. If this episode has brought up feelings for you and you need support, please reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Respect on 1-800-RESPECT. You can connect with me on Insta or TikTok at bolo.pod Email me on bolo.pod at icloud.com or if you have a case you'd like me to cover, I have a quick form you can fill in on my Insta profile. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.